2: Slightly sexually compromising people. <laughs> <bit. laughs>
0: Divulging their deepest digital secrets. <laughs> what the hell is happening? <laughs> Get off my phone. A Dave YouTube original. Available now on Dave's YouTube channel.
3: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
1: Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
0: This is a Dave original podcast.
2: This podcast contains bad language and references to drugs. But obviously we don't encourage either. Jordan Brooks, look at what you've done. I'm Jordan Brooks, a performer that the comedy industry loves but doesn't know what to do with. So they're throwing me a podcast-shaped bone. This week, my guest is Lucy Beaumont, a stand-up actor and writer who first came to people's attention when she won the BBC New Comedy Award. Since then, she's appeared on all sorts of TV shows, most notably Meet the Richardsons, a hugely popular sort of reality show about life with husband and fellow comic John Richardson. We cover her one-time teenage regrets. I
3: still think about it a lot now.
2: Her refusal to be added to her university's Hall of Fame.
3: I found uni really difficult.
2: And the almost, but not quite, collapse of her marriage. Lucy. Lucy, Lucy, Lucy. Jordan. (laughs) (laughs) What were you like as a baby?
3: Well, we don't know, do we? But I only know by what I've been told by others. Yeah. But they all say the same thing.
2: There's so a consistency. I'm
3: imagining that they were right yeah I was no trouble and it and it was nice hearing that growing up but it, it really grates on me when I now hear that in front of my child when she's been when she's misbehaving and they all <laughs> say oh you work like that don't know what's happened I was a I was a great baby I was a great child
2: what do you mean great like were you helping out with like washing the dishes and
3: the way they say, it, I was great because I didn't make a noise. I didn't, tru- I didn't trouble anyone. I didn't wake them up. I didn't. I played on my own. I was quiet. I was a good eater. And I just stayed out everybody's way. <laughs> that's why I was good.
2: Were your parents not a little bit worried? Because that's like sinister. There's like there's like good there's like good behavior, but then at a certain point, a well behaved child starts to become quite creepy, right?
1: Oh
3: yeah. Well, no, because my mum was wild. Right. And my mum and dad were young. They were you know they were young. My dad was an art student, and my mum worked in the shop in the art shop. And oh, they were...
2: fun. So how old were they when they when they had you?
3: Oh, like I think my mum was twenty. My dad was twenty. Right,
2: right.
3: You know, he'd met someone a bit rough, his family thought. Right. He'd moved from from North London to art school and met this rough Yorkshire lass.
2: (laughs) So like you were a well behaved baby because your parents were a bit young and chaotic. So you were like, were you like anchored? You saw them and you went, right, someone's got to take control here.
3: Yeah, it was like that sort of. I suppose like that middle child that has to just behave themselves because they don't get. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, they made themselves a middle child.
3: <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so mm. there was there was no point there was no point trying to match it. I had to, um, I had to sometimes be the adult.
2: You were having to step up and be more more of an adult than they were being. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. What like what? What did you have to do?
3: Counsel them. And uh, to tell them <laughs>
2: <to> <laughs> the therapist.
3: Tell them off, give good advice, be, be the yeah. stability be the stability in the life that they needed.
2: So you were quite a quiet child, were you like good at school? Would you were you well behaved at school?
3: Yeah, I was good at good at uh, primary school because um, I thought I thought God would be um, angry with me if I wasn't. Um, so I, w- I went to a Catholic school and then I went to a, a Church of England primary school. And both, you know, like you know, enjoyed watching children pray to God, <laughs> <laughs> and and was good for behaviour, of course.
2: But you weren't religious. It was just, it was just the school that.
3: I think I was religious. Yeah, I did. Um, but I did, I did sort of. I thought, knew it was a two way thing. Mm. I, I was aware that, like, if I was good, then he would probably give me good things. And I, and I definitely thought it was a man.
2: Oh, we all did. We all did. It was the '80s, Lucy. We all did.
3: <laughs> but I watched Annie a lot as well, so like, did think that like a, a, a big white bald man would probably save me at some <laughs> point. <laughs>
2: But you would
3: probably have to give him something in return.
2: So you were quite scared of consequences, is that right? So you you were at school and you were worried that if you misbehaved, you'd spend an an eternity in hell?
3: Yeah, I felt God was there all the time looking at me. That's scary. Yeah, that he was always next to me wherever I was and judging me. Yeah. I think I was relieved that I was naturally a kind person anyway.
2: (laughs) 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 What a relief.
3: Yeah, so when I did kind things, I would think... He knows I'm been kind, you know.
2: Oh. Did you actively do kind things? Do you remember anything especially kind where you were like, Oops, I'm going to heaven. Going to heaven yeah, for I that think, one. I
3: think just a nice person, but equally I remember doing some not nice things as well.
2: Oh, tell us about that.
3: <laughs> I still think about it a lot now, is when we went swimming and we all you know, put our swimming costumes on um, you know, before we left the house, like underneath she didn't have to get changed in front of everyone, anyone, mm-hmm. but I forgot I didn't bring knickers. Right, and then um, and so I, I stole another girl's knickers and put her knickers on, and and obviously she was like, where, "Where are my knickers?" And then she couldn't, she didn't wear knickers for the day. They didn't have any in the office, and like the like the boys knew she wasn't wearing knickers.
2: You're going to hell. Sorry to tell you this, but. That would be such a shame wouldn't it After you've gone You're heading up to the pearly gates And it's like all this list of good things But then they go Yeah but that knicker thing was really bad So we can't
3: and she became quite promiscuous Because she was very well developed And I always Oh this is
2: horrific
3: And I always thought This is my (laughs) This is my fault (laughs) This is my fault (laughs) Like some sort of Like like a pimp or something almost
2: She's scrambling around She's looking through her bag That search goes on for like an unbearably long length of time and you go, oh no, I've done a bad thing.
3: the teacher sat us all down and said, someone's taken a knickers, put your hand up. If it was you, I'm going to give you a chance. She's crying.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And you you sat there and did nothing?
3: I sat there and did nothing. But she was a bigger girl than me. They didn't fit me very well. So I had to be really discreet when I was trying to pull them up all the (laughs) time.
2: Holding them up all day. (laughs) (laughs)
3: I think that's why no one thought it would be me either, because I I (laughs) was half her size, you know.
2: Okay, well, that's horrific. Uh, But but you think about it still today?
3: Yeah, I think about it a lot. And, you know, when Mm. Facebook started up, it rivaled like Friends Reunited, so it was very much like Mm. this is to get in touch with friends that you haven't seen for a long time. And I got in touch with her and apologised to her and said, look, It's been on my mind for years and years. I need you to know I stole your
2: knickers. (laughs) How many years later was this then?
3: 2004, 2005, something like that.
2: So, how long had it been since the knickers? Oh, gosh.
3: Since the 90s, like 94. So, like.
2: Wow, something like 10 years. Yeah. And what did she say?
3: She was really, like, blase about it. She was just like, okay, right, yeah, I vaguely remember that. Don't worry, hope you're all right. It was, like, a bit of an anti-climax almost.
2: You almost want her to have been more upset.
3: Yeah, I think so. <laughs> 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 well, bothered me more than it's bothered her, obviously.
2: Yeah. Well, you want your apology to pack more punch. You don't want someone to just shrug off something that you've been worrying about for a decade.
3: Yeah, and I was prepared if she wanted to go to the sun about it or something like that, <laughs> you know, like, I was prepared for it.
2: I'm sorry to hear that. That's the worst part of it, actually. <laughs> I know. That is the worst part of it. I
3: know. I
2: know. What were you like as a teenager then? When, when you hit, sort of, when you hit, like, puberty, what, what happened?
3: Um... It was quite a rough school, my school, where you're sort of like... It wasn't the roughest because it was just outside of Hull, but it was had that sort of like fighting mentality, mm-hmm. you know, where it was like, it was about sort of being hard. Who was the cock? Who was the cock of the school?
2: Yeah, yeah, so I had you, that in mind.
3: You actually build mechanisms to stop yourself getting beaten up, don't you? It's like, mm. I was so worried that I'd be next, you know, because they'd, they'd all sort of put yeah. a ring around you in the on the field and... Yeah, and I don't know if it's character building or if you could have done without it. I'm not, I'm not quite sure.
2: It might build a character, but just like a really shit one. Yeah, it's like a shit, (laughs) shit one-dimensional character.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably. But I was, I was protected in the early years because the older girls, you know, because obviously, like the sixteen-year-olds, you know, a, a lot of schools. A lot of girls are ready to have a baby at 15, 16. sixteen. They're broody. They, you know, they, they, because I was like a child. They basically picked me up one day in year seven and didn't put me down. And I used to go around on their hips.
2: (laughs) They just carried you around. Carried me around.
3: Sat on their knee. Yeah, I was like one of them designer dogs.
2: So (laughs) sitting in their handbags.
3: It was like being in a women's prison. No one touched me. Wow. You know, so I was like. Untouchable because it was like I hung around with with the older girls, but then they left, you know, to have children, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then it was just it wasn't until uh, the de- the day I left school that um, I was told that actually I was probably ready to have a relationship, <laughs> and then I, and then so. When I went to college I really embraced being a teenager and started to sort of like look at a bit older and mm. you know, and it and it was like the first time it was on the cards then that I could actually have a relationship with a boy. I rebelled and I me and my friends hung around with a group of lads that were notorious troublemakers and we just had the best times of our lives really.
2: Just how old were you then?
3: Well, from being sort of 15
2: mm.
3: and that carried on like all through college. And um, yeah, it was just really hedonistic, just did every drug under the sun, just really mm. expanded mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. mind, really um, had amazing conversations and went to like incredible raves mm-hmm. and just loved it. Just like really liked, really liked, cause I, I liked not drinking. I liked dancing all night and I just think it was amazing. I just, I just thought I was always around people who were like quite spiritual and just was looking for a bigger meaning. And, mm. I, you know, and it just made Hull seem like an exciting place to be, you know, because I think Pat, you know, yeah, it just, yeah, I think it was just amazing. Hard House and Acid House was, felt like you were in a club, you know, I just loved it. From Friday to Sunday, not sleeping every weekend. You just didn't yeah. sleep. You just, like, everything was, like, waiting for the weekend again. Yeah, it's just amazing.
2: Did you ever overdo it? Was there ever a point where you went, oh, I'm too, I'm too high. This, is, this oh, is, I'm in the bad. I'm in a bad place now.
3: A friend of ours was sectioned because he'd, he'd, he'd take, and that's when we all knew it was good. Because we were at the, the generation that still had the good ecstasy. We just mm. there was still just um, like Mitsubishi's and um, Superman's and stuff that had like. Mm-hmm. So we were still there was older like rave heads around still. So there was like quite a purity, and I, and it did it changed, and we saw we saw um, that ecstasy tablets started to be speckled. So we were there when it changed. Where they were trying to make more of a profit out of it, and mm. they were had had bits of smacking basically, and we we had to get out then because what I think what was happening was they were they were slowly trying to groom the next generation of heroin addicts. Um, yeah, and me and my friend, you know, we sort of come from better homes than a lot of the kids we were hanging around with, so. Yeah, we were very aware of like, okay, we're, we're nice girls from a nice area and we've dabbled with all this, but it all is getting a little bit intense. Yeah. So we were able to step back out, you know, sort of detoxify our bodies almost and like mm. knock it on the head. But we were very aware that we were leaving behind people that might
2: never, escape never get
3: out of it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So we could see where the line was between actually we've been brought up well, you know, we've been... We've, we've had a good upbringings.
2: Did your parents know that you you were taking drugs and stuff?
3: Oh, only my mum did. I think she was, yeah, I think there was a point at which she was worried, but I think they could see that, like, we got out of it as well, you know, mm. when, when when it was, yeah, before it got a problem. God, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. she could see it was recreational, you know, it was recreational, yeah.
2: Yeah. Seeing who grew up in that period and, and seeing how much it shredded their, like, emotional state yeah. um it made, made a lot of people like it broke a lot of people's minds I think in ways that they never recovered from you just don't think about it at the time of course of course you don't you're not, you know no one's thinking about particularly at that age you're not thinking about the long-term consequences
3: no no I, I to be honest I just I just thought I've always hung around with people who are funny so mm. that that sort of guided me really because that meant I would you know they were good good people these are good they?
2: people yeah these are good it's good company Yeah. yeah yeah
3: it's just always a laugh
2: yeah, yeah. So you went to college and uni? Did you stay in Hull or did you did you leave?
3: I didn't have any A levels. I didn't have any points mm-hmm. for uni. Yeah. Um. But but Hull University, I don't know whether they still do it now, but at the time they had to let a person from Hull in from what was considered a deprived background, mm-hmm. and because my, even though my mum is a writer, but she's a single mum, you know, and hadn't really earned that that much money really even though she's written a lot for Radio Far, mm. I think we we counted as you know being someone they had to let in and such a good thing that they do um so at every course they let someone in from from Hull who hasn't made the the grades but is showing a and you know a, a passion for that subject that's cool so I was I felt really lucky about that but it was awful and they do this is the mad thing that I'm I've always sort of wanted to tell them at uni, you know, at the uni that it's good that you do that, but then you have to support that person <laughs> because I was suddenly, um they were lovely. I had a really good year group, but they all had been, because they'd got the maximum amount of points, they'd all got four A stars at A level. Mm. They'd naturally been to really great schools and we were worlds apart. You know, I didn't, um academically, I just didn't as I say, I'd just been prancing around in a porter gap in, in Hull. <laughs> you know, I didn't know how to write an essay or bibliography, and I was tread yeah. a bit like the poor Hull girl with the funny accent. The university was had so much money knocking about. I thought, you you should have support if you're gonna give me this, you know, golden ticket then you need to sort of support me in it because it's...
2: It should be an ongoing thing rather than this golden ticket to Willy Wonka's factory and then off you fuck into the, into the chocolate stream.
3: Yeah, and I got... Um, they, they've now given me a gold star at the uni. They did this thing where notable people from the uni, they did like a walk of fame and I got a star. No way. And I could go, yeah, amazing, and I could go and unveil it. But I wrote a letter to the dean instead explaining that... um. I found uni really difficult, and mm. I, I can't sort of just come and and sort of celebrate it because I think there's a lot that they got wrong.
2: Well, good for you because I think you know we, sometimes it's very easy to forget how much trauma something has caused us. But you could easily have just gone off, oh, forget, forget the, forget the past. Thank you for my gold star.
3: Yeah, I wanted to leave. I, every time I wanted to leave, but I, it was um, it was the friendship. It totally was worth it. Universities like that have have to change. You know, they can't carry mm. on working the way they're working.
2: So you left uni, and then you got into performance and stuff. You were, you did you go straight into doing comedy? Oh
3: god, I've done have done so many jobs. <laughs> I'm worn out. i like worn out. I'm like I feel like I could retire now because mm. I feel like I've worked enough now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I moved to London with a friend, and we set up a theatre company. And we did, we went round schools
2: mm.
3: and performed round schools. And then I, and then I, I was really liking it in London. And I got an agent. I got an acting agent based mm-hmm. in Newcastle. And the first professional job she got me was back in Hull. <laughs> so I had to move back to Hull. <laughs> and we did a show. It was brilliant. It was really well. It was, it was really popular show. And mm. um, called them um, Ladies Day. And it was about fishwives in Hull that go to ladies day you know the horse mm. racing it was really funny and because we went on tour with it i i was allowed to, to experiment with timing to test you know if it, that 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 like millisecond mm-hmm. that you, you can you can say something a millisecond um too slow and it won't get as much of a laugh yeah um, yeah and i just Fell in love with timing and trying to manipulate audiences. You know, we were we taught for eight months. So, uh, you know, I just got addicted to hearing an audience laugh, you know, a true, true laugh, you know, proper laugh, you know, where the people have caught co- the coffin, like the coffin. Mm-hmm the crap out of the lungs, that's my favourite laugh, you know, where someone hasn't laughed for ages. And you can actually, well, you'll know, Jordan, you can actually hear them clearing the lungs out.
2: Yeah, 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 you can see them cleansing themselves, getting, just like barking the sadnesses out of their body.
3: Yeah, yeah, and the laughs that you don't hear, but you get to just pick up on the light, you Mm. know, by the lighting of people wiping their eyes, that whether, you know, uh, oh, there's just... That new mu- I mean, I know, I can only, you know, some people you just couldn't talk like this to, and probably a lot of comedians you couldn't talk mm. like this too because you just sound like you sounded self-indulgent. No, not but at all. The music of laughter, mm. you know, um, that's what, because I was in theatre, you know, so, um, you know, I've, I've only, t- you know, I've, I've not done it on a big scale. I've only done regional theatre, but I just fell in love with, with 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 that really.
2: So, did anyone say to you, "Oh, you should do stand up," or did you just you just sort of started to think, actually, I could I could maybe go into that?
3: No, I I, I never wanted to do stand up. Um, I never thought it it was for me. There was never anyone like me. I didn't you know, see anyone mm. like like me. I I I thought probably at that time, if you'd have asked me, I probably would have thought, well you know they just don't look like me they're not they're feminine you know they're f- feminists I didn't mm. really understand what that was you know but I did want to make a career out of just doing regional comedy theatre mm. um you know you I would have only have ever earned maximum 20, 20 grand a year and I was I w- that's what I thought my life would be I would live you know probably always rent never drive mm. live in Hull or you know Salford or you know somewhere cheap but I would just do four plays a year because that's what everyone around me was doing and the recession hit and theatres just closed up or stopped making new work and all these you know there's certain theatres that have always had established for years a working class audience that would just routinely come to the theatre they as much as you think of um working class people going to the pub you know a Bolton Octagon um a Hull truck, mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, the one in the gate in Newcastle. There, there was these certain ones, York, even like York Theatre Royal had that going, and th- these were different types of, of audience, definitely. So it, it all went, I tried for a number of years just to work as as an actor, um, but this just never earned any money, just never got auditions, mm-hmm. started to think, Maybe, maybe you're not as good an actor as you think you are, as well. You know, um, like you maybe are, you probably are, because it probably would have happened by now. And 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 so like ended up in these mad jobs. Like I've had every job under the sun. I ended up t- uh, cleaning at the university that I had a degree at. Oh. Yeah, and had to hide from lecturers because I didn't want them to see me.
2: Oh, bless you.
3: Yeah, but then that's when that crow landed on my head. (laughs) Yeah, leaving work one day, a crow landed on my head, and it was like, uh, yeah, like that uh, eureka moment when it, like, used me as a stepping stone to get, like, onto a wall. And, um, and, And I thought... That'd be really funny, like a stand-up material. Mm. Like, I, and that's when I I I got five minutes at Camden. I just thought I'm just going to try a five-minute set out.
2: So this crow landed on your head, <laughs> and you were like, "I'm going to do stand-up comedy."
3: I think I must have already thought. I wonder if I could do it, but it it honestly really wasn't until this crow because I just thought, <laughs> I just knew it was. I just knew it was could be funny, you know. Yeah. Um, and got the mega bus down there. Took me, I think it took five and a half hours to get down there, and then did it, did it for five minutes, and got got the mega bus back.
2: So you got so this crow landed on your head, and you went. The people need to know. So you got on a coach, you went down to Camden, and you told them the crow story, and then went home. Yeah. Did they? Did they? Did the audience like it?
3: If that had gone badly, I would definitely never have done it again. I I, I would have been so humiliated. Hmm. But they just was a bit confused. They just, I mean, when I'm saying confused, that's probably like, that makes it sound like they were wrong to be confused that I just don't think they quite got what I was trying to do because it was summer and the windows were all open. It was above the Camden head. Um, Well, the first thing I tripped up as over the mic cable, as I went, as I got on stage, which they thought was uh, slapstick. Oh
1: my
2: God.
3: Um, so they they they'd laughed. They, you know. And they wanted
2: more of that, immediately wanted more of that.
3: Well, then I thought, I'm going to have to be like a character to make up for that laugh. Yeah. And also what I'd done was I took my handbag on stage with me by accident because I had it <laughs> in my hands. And I thought, I'm going to have to keep doing that for more. Yeah, and then basically, because they had the windows open, I went to open my mouth and a massive car horn went off and it looked like I'd done it with my, <laughs> my mouth. I got a round of applause. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I started doing pubs, you know, just... And I, I couldn't drive, so I met this lad. I don't even know how I met him, actually. Um, and he was... um Oh, oh, oh what's the nice way of... He lived with his mum and, you know, was a quite shy guy. Um, long hair, was into, like... Metal and um, big, you know, big guy. And um, I just had him as a stooge on stage with me. My, my act was like really, I mean, alternative would be the polite word for it, I suppose. Mm. <laughs> but uh, I just did, I was like into like really, really bonkers left field stuff. Like, and so he was, he just was, he just stood next to me on stage and didn't do anything. And he <laughs> had a handbag as well. <laughs> what I was using him for was a driver I needed him to drive us and then he and then he was saying we was a double act and I was saying no because if I make it big I are going halves with you because you don't do anything <laughs>
2: you'd hit series 10 of Meet the Richardsons. <laughs> how do you manage, or how did you manage to separate your relationship as depicted on screen from the real relationship you were having?
3: What we did, we we stayed together, but we, we separated in the house. So we built, um, we divided the house, basically. Right. Um, I got a bit more house, John got a bit more garden, and we put a brick wall in yeah um and but with a like a window you know like a serving hatch mm-hmm. um so we would still talk to each other through that
2: so you were having really nice chats through the through the hatch to maintain
3: no ar- arguments a connection. through the
2: hatch oh, arguments through the it, hatch right it's the
3: arguing we have to keep you know keep keep going like a muscle you know
2: that must like mess with your head a little bit though right you no. you're like you've separated no not at all
3: No, no, it was amazing because we had to, because we could have been working together that long, we had to separate fact from fiction. Because um, obviously, like, as you'll know, when we got to about series eight or nine, Mm -hmm. um, we both started having affairs Mm -hmm. with Anthony Mm -hmm. Mm (laughs) Eterna. So um, it all got a bit weird anyway, you know.
2: Did either of you... No, because obviously you both knew that there was something going on, right? You both knew that there was another person in in each other's lives. When did you discover that you were both having an affair with Anthea Turner?
3: When I caught John in a blonde wig and high heels and he said, I'm Anthea Turner... (laughs) And then Anthea Turner came out of the bathroom and said, no, I'm Anthea Turner. And then obviously it was quoted in The Sun, wasn't it? And then I went, no, I'm I'm fucking Anthea Turner. At that point, I wasn't actually fucking Anthea Turner. But once I'd read it in The Sun, I thought I probably will. But the sad thing is, is when we did sleep together, I thought of John the whole time.
2: But you thought of John in the blonde wig?
3: Yeah, so then it's like, it's what do I like? do I like? Do I like Anthea Turner? Mm. Do I like John looking like Anthea Turner? Mm. Or actually, is it because I look like a young Anthea Turner and I actually like fucking myself, <laughs> which, you know, they say is a thing.
2: They do say it's a thing, but you but you categorically refuse to go to therapy to make sense of it, and instead choosing to enjoy... The mystery of it right
3: you'll know this as well like what, what i do actually is having things happen in my life and then um, the agony aunt from the sun she analyzes it and it's like three free therapy so I, I read it i read it yeah. like that you know so
2: you'd be writing into her to the agony aunt every every day with a new you go, oh it's me again do you think i'm trying to fuck myself or john
3: their therapist would analyze it mm. but i actually found it quite useful, listening to her take on my life. Yeah. Uh, a bit like reading a horoscope, you know.
2: But by Series 10, it had sort of become... It become sort of, like, indistinguishable from The Only Way Is Essex in terms of the sort of trashy, big storylines, uh, the sense that none of it was quite real.
3: Yeah, it just it's a shame it ended like that, because obviously... We ended up becoming like the crankies, didn't we? Really. I mean, mm. young people don't know the crankies when they want to sort of reference something sort of hideous, sexually hideous. They now record, you know, they now sort of um, say, "Oh, the Richardsons," you know.
1: Just.
3: Mm. I mean, I I regret the surgery I had. I do I do regret
2: it, but top to toe in one in one swoop, yeah. that's a, it's a lot for the body to take.
3: Yeah, I went sort of cartoon light, didn't I? But um, <laughs> you know, I liked Dolly Parton and what she's achieved. I mean, it it worked for her, didn't it?
2: Yeah, it did. It did. Um, you carried on living in the same house, divided by a brick wall with a hatch. Yeah. Um, and you, you actually both. I mean, you both stayed there until 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 you died, right? I mean, you still you were there. You were there for. For for decades,
3: yeah, same house. Um, left the brick wall up, just put uh, another door on. So mm. if we needed to, we would sort of go go to mm. to the door to to see each other instead. Yeah, yeah. that's but, very sweet. But, but that brick wall um has always been there anyway. You know, in in our heads.
2: Exactly, it's sort of it's a it's a it's a mental one, and that you know that you can never chip that away. That's that's grade two listed. Oh yeah, that's not going anywhere.
3: No, totally. Yeah. That's like those um, composite doors. You know, mm. they're, they're not going anywhere.
2: Yeah, yeah. So you put a lot of uh, your time and energy and money into establishing your own university. Can you talk me through what shape that that university took?
3: Yeah, and um, I mean. Mainly obviously that there was a the, the money laundering thing
2: was true. It was. You're happy to confirm was, that now.
3: Yeah, it was true. Mm-hmm. It was true. And it it was, you know, total uh, involvement with a with a cartel mm. group. Um again, you know, I sort of like romanticised it was gonna be like the craze in the sixties mm. and it and it wasn't.
2: Yeah, it was more like the craze in the noughties dead
3: yeah yeah but do you know what somebody's got to do it
2: so the, the the uni was eventually uh demolished wasn't it you you personally took a bulldozer to it one morning on a whim
3: the cafe failed its uh, hygiene certificate so it actually, <laughs> that that was how it actually went in the end bizarrely yeah. I mean there was all sorts of things happening there but that is what that was the demise of it and we, we couldn't keep open without a cafe. Uh,
2: how bad does the hygiene level have to be that it that it, it's, that it's the building is immediately called for its demolition?
3: It was bad. It was bad. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think they said, I think they said, like, it, it's akin to, to, to syphilis. Yeah. That was sort of, people sy- were getting the syphilis,
2: ill. Yeah, the syphilis yeah. kitchen.
3: People were getting very, very ill, yeah
2: yeah yeah it's oh, a yeah that's a real shame, but you eventually sort of um retired back to your back to your house with john and you said you said that you di- you both died in in misery but I'd like to go into more detail with that can you can you talk us through how you how you died
3: um yeah i died um quite peacefully actually mm-hmm. um I was watching um a film mm-hmm. um a nice film. A film I was in actually, I'd watch it a lot. Um, basically, to see when I had a mouth because it was it was my mouth that collapsed first. You know, like a drawstring bag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I missed having lips, so I used yeah. to watch that, and, and and also that you know, just my speech went as well. Which mm. isn't it? Isn't that's always the way? Isn't it the thing you were most sort of mm. um, known for? for talking is the thing that
2: you course. can't
3: do. And, that, and that's really why those last few years John enjoyed, you know, mm. um, we would hold hands and I, I wouldn't be able to speak mm. very well. And yeah. he liked that. He just liked a, a company of another presence sneering rather than me talking to him. So we, I was just watching a film mm. and I just said, um, I'm just going to go get a cracker. <clears throat> And I got up and 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 died, died on the spot. And um, I mean, you will know uh, rigor mortis set in, mm. and uh, so I was bent over. Actually, well, just just a bit of fluff on the carpet, mm. and at that moment I died. So rigor mortis set in, and what what was unusual because I am um, because I had done a lot of yoga, my back was quite straight so as I bent over my back created it almost like a table mm-hmm. and the, and John just came in, put a tablecloth over me and um a vase with daffodils because it was in March. And then and that was his last joke because when the ambulance arrived they didn't know where I was. Yeah. And and the ambulance lady said, Oh that's a nice table. Would you set that up? And he said, No, that's that's my wife underneath it crouched down and then they all laughed and then obviously in the picture and then john died um the mm. day after of, of a broken heart which people thought was was really sweet
2: or a broken vase
3: and and they said you know he got one last laugh
2: yeah he got he went. got
3: one one upon on her yeah
2: yeah it's a really it's a it's a really sweet uh end to to both your lives but um, how would you like to be re- remembered? What's your what's your legacy?
3: Just sort of uh, a, a mediocre comic and writer, and lived in Yorkshire with a you know. Actually, had a couple of dogs. One child was well known in the area she lived in. Did a few charitable things, not too much. You know, sort of spoke out. A couple of times about but nothing anyone would really remember other sort of level of notoriety that people would say oh look there's Lucy Beaumont but not so much that they would come over for a picture <laughs> yeah like um pleased to see you but mm. won't probably go home and tell anybody yeah that sort of like just coasting
2: through yeah there she is there she is
3: oh yeah 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 that's there that um That's what's the name.
2: Lucy Beaumont, look at what you've done. Thank you. Lucy Beaumont there, who will be forever remembered as the Isaac Newton of comedy after she had the epiphany to tell jokes for a living when a crow fell on her.
0: Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to nose around a comedian's house, take their stuff and see how much money you can make by selling it? No, that's a pretty niche thing, to be honest. bit creepy, really. But that's the premise of Dave's brand new comedy podcast, Hard Sell, with me, Josh Jones. And me, Darren Harrier. We're going to travel the country, visiting the homes of different comedians, chatting about their spending habits before grabbing one of their favourite possessions and giving ourselves one week to try and sell it for charity in a competition to see who can raise the most money. It's a right laugh as we get to meet amazing funny people like Keema Bob, Joel Domit, Ria Lena, Ivo Graham, Josh Pugh and lots more. But also sort of like an incredibly stressful cheese dream where we're trying to shift what are essentially stolen goods against the clock. (laughs) It's bonkers. Hard sell with Josh Jones. And Darren Harrier. Available now wherever you get your podcasts.